And now, broadcasting on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and delighted you could join us today. In recent months, we have explored the virtues of hemp, the medical miracles, its industrial utility, and the numerous economic, environmental, and restorative benefits of cultivating it. We've also covered some of the sinister reasons why hemp, a non-psychoactive substance, became lumped in with LSD and heroin on the DEA's list of Schedule I controlled substances. And we've also gone over the political reasons why it's still illegal to grow hemp in the United States. Despite the windfall profits enriching foreign farmers, importing billions of dollars in hemp to meet the growing demand for hemp products here in the U.S. With all the talk about making America great, hemp prohibition is one bone of contention that would make for some very lively debate. It could take years to unpack the many reasons why it's so difficult for our government to realize scheduling hemp was a mistake. But suffice it to say, they have no rational argument to justify current policy. Despite the facts and all we know about the ways hemp could benefit our country, it remains illegal to cultivate in this country on a federal level. To put the absurdity into context, it's important to note that it was once deemed illegal for farmers not to grow hemp in the U.S. In fact, there are a number of periods in American history when farmers who refused to produce hemp could be fined, arrested, or worse, lose their land rights. In the 1600s, farmers in Virginia, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and other Chesapeake colonies were mandated to cultivate hemp. During shortages in the 1700s, farmers in Virginia not growing cannabis would be jailed. For more than 200 years, hemp was legal tender in most of the Americas and was often used to pay tax. It's common knowledge that some of our most devastating wars have been waged over natural resources. Oil, forest land, precious metals and gems are just some of the riches that thousands have died to acquire or protect. What's not widely known is that throughout history, great wars were fought to ensure the availability of hemp. The War of 1812 was fought by America against Great Britain over access to Russian cannabis hemp. Napoleon and his continental system allies invaded Russia in 1812 for the same reason. In the 1930s, when oil barons learned how to replace hemp with fossil fuels, hemp became illegal. The big oops happened in 1942 after the Japanese invasion of the Philippines cut off supply. The U.S. government distributed 400,000 pounds of cannabis seed to American farmers from Wisconsin to Kentucky, who produced 42,000 tons of hemp fiber until 1946 when the war ended. Hemp for Victory was a film distributed nationwide to encourage hemp cultivation for the war effort. Eighty years later, Another Hemp for Victory campaign is about to get underway. That's the topic of today's show, and there is really no one better than today's guest to delve into that topic with me. I'm excited to introduce them, but first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. 
Hemp is oftentimes widely misunderstood, even by medical professionals, who in general haven't had the time or opportunity to become educated themselves. I often forget that the difference between hemp and marijuana is not common knowledge. That's not surprising, considering the fact that federal law essentially makes no distinction between them both. While both hemp and marijuana have the iconic shape of the leaf in common, they differ in physical appearance. The marijuana variety is known for its delicate stem and soft green leaves. It produces complex flowering tops containing resins that are moist or sticky to the touch. By contrast, hemp has longer, thinner leaves that are coarser to the touch and sturdy, fibrous stalks that can grow up to 8 feet tall. It also produces flowering tops, but they are proportionally smaller in size. The biggest distinction between hemp and marijuana has to do with their chemical and molecular composition. Both varieties of cannabis contain hundreds of cannabinoids, which as we are learning can be very important for human health. The primary difference has to do with the presence of THC, the cannabinoid molecule that produces the euphoric or psychoactive effect that marijuana is famous for. Hemp contains only traces of THC, so it has no psychoactive effect at all. Both hemp and marijuana varieties have high concentrations of CBD, or cannabidiol, which is commonly used to help with a variety of disease processes. Additionally, a combination of cannabinoids and terpenes, including THC and CBD, can work together in harmony, sometimes referred to as the entourage effect. Since hemp has only trace levels of THC, it won't produce any euphoria and is non-psychoactive in nature. For patients who are new to medical cannabis, especially those who are afraid of the psychoactive effect or simply don't want to have the high feeling, a hemp-derived CBD product may be an appropriate starting point. For patients living in states that have yet to pass medical marijuana laws, or for those that are not eligible for THC products, there are companies that offer 100% THC-free CBD oils extracted from hemp stock. Those can be legally purchased online from anywhere in the U.S. and delivered to your home. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you so much, Dr. Donner. We'll look forward to hearing from you next week. So let's get right to it. I am very happy to introduce Michael Bowman, otherwise known as Mr. Hemp. He was the founding chair of the National Hemp Association and today is lobbying big time for the legalization of hemp. And he is also a co-conspirator in the Hemp for Victory campaign. Hi, Michael. I'm so glad you could join us. Snowden, it's great to be here. <laughs> I'm also happy to reintroduce Micah Nelson. If you were listening a couple of months ago, you might have heard him. We were talking about his efforts to educate the public about hemp. He's a singer-songwriter. He's in the psych punk orchestra Insects versus Robots and has a long legacy of entertainment that he can tell you about later. But suffice it to say, he has joined the effort as a board member of the National Hemp Association. And he's also working with Michael Bowman on the Hemp for Victory campaign. Welcome back, Micah. Thanks. Good to be back. So I am very excited to hear where you are with this campaign. It's something that I think is long overdue. And uh, Michael, tell me what's going on. Well, we're, Snowden, we're gearing up to launch this campaign in 2018. As you know, 2018 will be the 75th anniversary uh, of the campaign year uh, when the farmers grew the first crop for the war effort. You know, and interestingly enough, what gets lost sometimes in this story on hemp is that it was really rooted in 4-H 
in uh, 1941-42, uh, they suspended 4-H camp in Washington, D.C., and they were looking for ways that the 4-H kids could help with the war effort, and both in, in growing food locally and, and, and the local food supplies. That then led to the conversation and then the 1942 effort of 4-H kids in Kentucky growing the seed for the 1943 crop. So as we kind of look in, look in this broader context of of where, you know, the importance of hemp and the founding of our country and really of civilization over the last 12,000 years. And then we look at this period of time during the war effort and what we did to bring it back. And then more importantly, in its context to its importance today uh, of what hemp can do and, and do for us as an economy, uh, when we look at it wrapped around it and really sustainability and resilience you know, programs that we want to institute back into our rural agricultural areas and our nation's economy, you know, we're we're really are back at, to front and center again of what we can do with it. Yeah. And um, Micah, you're on the board of the National Hemp Association. What are some of the efforts that are going on with uh, NHA in terms of uh, lobbying efforts or anything else like that, just to bring everybody up to speed? Well, I... I had a petition on change.org for a while to uh, encourage Congress and the Senate and all of those folks to uh, pass the, the new farm bill, which included the Industrial Hemp Farming Act. And that garnered over 120-some thousand signatures. And I've been personally growing hemp uh, for the past year uh, in my backyard garden and just trying to learn about its qualities and its behavior and how resilient it is and what demands as a... I've been talking to a lot of people about the Hemp for Victory campaign and, and building interest in it and getting together as many California volunteers as I can to help kickstart the hemp industry in California. Yeah, because they're, they're really opening that up right now from what I understand. Isn't it January 2018 when the adult use legalization happens? Yes, it'll be uh, in, in January of 18. Uh, that does open up. They'll be following basically a mirror of what happened in Colorado. So we'll have both the adult use and then the entire spectrum of the plant. Uh, California's ballot initiative 64, you know, also legalized industrial hemp. Those permits uh, are not yet quite ready for prime time, but that will happen sometime in 2018. Yeah. One of the things that I've mentioned on this show before, the Arizona legislature, which rarely agrees on anything, voted in favor of legalizing industrial hemp in the state, and it was vetoed by the governor. It's just such an absurd policy that we have, but educating policymakers about you know, the virtues of hemp seems to be falling on deaf ears because there's so many lobbies that are trying to prevent this from happening. So what are some of the efforts right now, the big lobby efforts that you know about, Michael, in terms of trying to counter some of the corporate interests that are preventing hemp legislation from moving forward? Well, I think we have a lot of room for cautious optimism in, in 2018. Uh, for the third time, the Industrial Hemp Farming Act it has been introduced uh, into Congress. It was introduced on the 113th and 14th, and now on the 115th. Why we, we have some optimism uh, this time around is not only the fact that in the last version we had, I think, about 18 senators and 86 congressmen that, that had ultimately signed on to that bill, but this time Congressman Bob Goodlatte, who's a Republican from Virginia, 
who historically has not been a, uh, a proponent of industrial hemp, is now the uh, the prime co-sponsor of the House bill, and that's H.R. 3530. Uh, he has literally been flipped on this issue by his farmers who have invited him to their research plots that have been grown in Virginia over the past year, uh, which, which interestingly enough, were, were financially supported by a gentleman that's had a long history with Farm Aid, uh, Dave Matthews. And it brought the congressman around to the point where he, he now wants to see this as part of his legacy. He announced his retirement after the session of Congress the next year and uh, wants us to, uh, to be part of his legacy in bringing this, this crop back to ag. So I think there's a lot of reason right now to, to think that we may have a chance here. We, ha- we do not know how the White House would react to this bill's passage, but I do believe we're going to find the congressional support to make it happen. Yeah, we, we had Congressman James Comer on this show not too long ago talking about the efforts. And I know that at that time, they were trying to figure out when they could go and talk to the presidential administration because there's been so much resistance from the White House and from the DOJ. Attorney <laughs> General Sessions has gone above and beyond to try to convince Congress that any form of cannabis is still the devil's weed. I just wonder, you know, has has anybody been able to get an audience with the president or anyone from his administration? I'll speak, and then uh, Micah may have some th- some things to add to this. I was in this last week. I was in in Washington and had a chance to spend the day at the National Press Club on Monday with uh, Ambassador Jim Woolsey, who's been a real hemp advocate. Uh, for a number of years, and predominantly from the perspective of energy. And part of the conversation on Monday uh, was about this Middle East Game of Thrones that's happening right now, and the real risk that we are running once again, not only for the U.S. economy, but for the global economy, uh, that if this goes into full-scale war, we could have $200 oil. You know, and this is what we've been talking about regarding liquid fuels and what we could do in making this country secure by making us energy secure, you know, takes us back to hemp. And specifically in 1937, when Henry Ford had built his prototype car that was built from uh, hemp composites and intended to run on a plant-based biofuels. Uh, but for the war and Henry dying in the middle of the war and, and coming back for his what was expected to be his 1942 debut, we may well have gone down the road of a bio or slash carbohydrate economy as opposed to the, the path we've taken. The point being, we're in a very perilous point in our, our time again. Is this something that will get this administration's attention? And will we start supporting the idea of of these kinds of, of opportunities and displacements so that we can at some point once and for all end our addiction to Middle Eastern oil and really can make our rural areas vibrant again as, as hemp playing a role in one of the many things it can do by creating biofuels. Yeah, it seems so uh, <laughs> far-fetched almost that anyone from this current administration would get on board with anything that could conserve fossil fuels considering, you know, some of the steps that have been taken to undermine the climate agreement and the efforts to undo some of the regulations regarding oil and gas. But um, Micah, what do you have to add to that? Well, I I definitely think we face a much greater challenge with this administration, but I'm hopeful in that it seems this next round, there are a lot more, like Michael was saying, conservative politicians like Goodlatte who are seeing past the sort of cultural stigma of hemp and cannabis as this countercultural identity thing and more about 
the bottom line that it entails and the rural jobs it creates and the industrial jobs it creates and and the multi-billion dollar industry that's sitting there that could really actually make America great again and strengthen the economy again and make us independent from reliance on foreign fuels and things like that. And the, the real challenge, though, is still ultra-powerful oil lobbies and chemical lobbies and the cotton lobbies and you know, having this administration in place that is so tied in with all of those things um, and these really outdated ideals. But I think in a way it could also be a catalyst towards people of intelligence on either side of the political spectrum coming together and recognizing in a time of, of such division that hemp is one of the most unifying uh, symbols. It represents within it not just these countercultural hippie ideas, but even more so, I think, these really conservative taking power away from big government, uh, strengthening farmers and the rural economy, the rural parts of America, bringing jobs back and, you know, actually doing the things that the Trump administration likes to promise and say that it's going to do. And so I'm hopeful in that, you know, if we keep pushing in this direction and we keep talking about it and, and educating, you know, Michael has been doing amazing work actually going on the on, to Washington on the ground floor and, and talking to these people and, and lobbying and, you know, coming from a conservative background, he really speaks that language and he knows how to communicate the message without it getting diluted by any sort of propaganda and, and uh, distracting from the benefits that can come with it for everyone and not just this sort of one-sided political agenda that we see too often. I think it's the David and Goliath slingshot that we need right now. I'm hopeful. It's, it's, it's very easy to be cynical about the whole thing, but I, we got we to gotta create our own reason to wake up and fight. I think we still have them in members of Congress like Goodlatte and uh, James Palmer. That that bridging that gap and yeah. educating the conservative politicians to how it can really help the country. Yeah, you know, in what you mentioned, therein lies the hypocrisy in a way. I mean, anyone who is a fiscal conservative and who really does believe in laissez-faire government, it seems that there is no good reason for them not to be fully advocating for this, unless, of course, their campaigns are financed by those who desire to prevent such legislation from passing. And that's the only thing, really, that makes sense to me. And, you know, when you look back on the whole Reefer Madness campaign, which targeted hemp as much as it did any psychoactive subspecies of cannabis, it just really makes a lot of sense. You know, the lobbies are so very powerful. But I think you're right. It has potential to be a unifying thing, you know, as as what happened in, in Arizona, where no one agrees on anything ever. Everything's yeah. always divided along party lines. And they all came together. And hemp would be amazing in this state because it grows with little water. It grows in any adverse conditions, really. Oh yeah, I I can't even keep them in the in the ground. They just like seeds that I don't even remember planting in my garden. I've just started sprouting up, <laughs> you know, behind my back. Like I don't remember planting that, but great, I got another. I have a whole little forest happening, and uh, they're like weeds, literally. They grow <laughs> I was like just gonna weeds. say, I think that's where the nickname weed came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And during the Reagan era, millions and millions of dollars were spent going around digging up literally weeds. They were growing like weeds throughout the country. And DEA agents were sent out on task to find wild fields of hemp and pull it up <laughs> and burn Very it. Silly. <laughs> I, Very silly business. It, it's, it is. It's silly. It's crazy. So, yeah. um, Michael, I like what you said about hemp as a matter of national security, because like I mentioned in the beginning, wars have been fought over natural resources. I predict that sometime in the future, if we continue down this path of unsustainable farming and and the chemicals that are being used to mulch paper and the chemicals that are seeping into our water supplies from fracking. And I think another great war is going to be over water. And if fuel does wind up becoming scarce and going up to $200 a gallon, it is a matter of national security. And when Jim Woolsey was in the room, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that meeting, because this is something that he's been saying for a long time. Well, I've known uh, the ambassador since 2004 and our very first meeting. Uh, he talked both about you know, the importance of national security through energy security, the role of hemp. And, and the Middle Eastern dynamics that were eventually going to lead us to today. This is the U.S.-China uh, forum uh, held in D.C. once a year. And it was just, you know, it was fascinating as they walk through the dynamics of, of this again. And it's, and it's one of those, here we are again. In the midst of this political chaos that we have right now, I really feel like there's a broader awakening that needed to happen. And while uh, I share Micah's concern, I think of, you know, the challenges we have on Capitol Hill about just the money that flows into Capitol Hill to keep, you know, the old businesses in place and protected through a Byzantine set of regulations and subsidies by our government. I do think that we are moving closer to a path where this upheaval is going to manifest a, a very different future. I think we, we understand that now. So I, I generally try to be an optimistic person anyway, because I think in times like this, you can't be anything but. Uh, but I do think that hemp is a, an incredible unifier right now, both in deed and in word. And, uh, and I think that it will be, remain the tip of the spear right now in this transformation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to a time when American farmers can partake in the enormous profits to be made from cultivating hemp. It just seems criminal right now that any farmer should be suffering at all from competition with big ag. And Micah, this is something you know a lot about. And I know that you and your family have been huge advocates for the American farmer. Is there another farm aid coming up soon? Every year. And how much is hemp a part of the message? This year I was really uh, thrilled to see a lot of hemp businesses represented at Farm Aid. We had it just outside of Pittsburgh. And hemp is such a foundational historical part of Pennsylvania. Down the street from where Farm Aid was, there's lib it's called Hemp Boulevard. I mean, they're so historically tied in with hemp farming there. And it was cool to see a whole display of a hempcrete wall being constructed right there. They had this, you know, the farmer village workshop. You could go around and learn about all this permaculture and ways to be sustainable. And then there was this whole area where it was this uh, guy who had this uh, hempcrete company in Pennsylvania. And I wish I could remember the name of it right now. But he was great. He was talking all about it in a really uh, easy to understand way. People were gathered around. He had his his wooden structure and he was 
he was making hempcrete right there and showing how easy it is adding water and lime and that's it it's like completely non-toxic process and insulating this wall entirely with hempcrete and demonstrating its inherent anti-pest uh, mold resistant flame resistant carbon sequestering properties it's it's literally a, a carbon negative product and and he was selling it in these big bags you know the mixture and uh that was really inspiring and i i just thought like that's a revolution right there like michael is saying that's national security as well because in these times we see all these temporary pop-up apartment buildings that they're not built to to last a thousand years um they're these sort of throw it up and throw it away kind of structures whereas this material is something that will last hundreds of years and it'll keep your house insulated it absorbs humidity and stores it and releases it depending on the temperature outside so your house is cool in the summer and hot in the winter and saves on your your own uh, utilities costs and so i mean we we could talk about the benefits of it forever but it was cool to see hemp more and more represented as the years go by at farm aid um, and people there the thousands of people that come there are able to just actually witness it firsthand and hear from hemp farmers and people in the industry talking about it and demonstrating it and i think it's really about people knowing about it because still so many people are confused about hemp you know there there's still you know smoke your house kind of jokes you know and like yeah i think that's that was funny for a while but now it's like okay perpetuating that is actually hurting everyone you know we need to get a little more serious about the distinction between hemp and marijuana and and educate people in a mass cultural way um beyonce should come out with a hemp line or something you know we like we need someone who's a huge cultural icon for the youth like a nascar driver or, or a country music star who's you know not my dad someone who is in a way, like kind of pandering <laughs> to a certain mass culture, but can champion hemp as a way to strengthen the country and strengthen those roots and the conservative ideals and get that entire population hit to the distinctions between them so that they can't be fooled anymore by propaganda that's to keep it from becoming legal again. We need to pause for a quick break. Snowden Bishop, the Cannabis Reporter, will be right back after these. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands, like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals, to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. 
you're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra for only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way. You can eliminate doctor office visits with 24-7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com. You're listening to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Welcome back. We're here with Michael Bowman and Micah Nelson. I think you make a really good point. It is really important for public figures, people that young people look up to or anyone looks up to, fan bases, admire, to really step up and get involved in this movement. And I have so much respect for you and your family for doing this because I know your father, and for those who don't know since I didn't mention it in the beginning, Willie Nelson is your father, and he's obviously been a huge cannabis advocate for a long time. But I think that he really could be credited as one of the pioneers actually going out there and advocating and raising awareness about hemp and the marijuana variety. And I know he has his line that's out and all of that. But I think you're right. I think that we need to get some major icons involved in this movement to come out and say, okay, hey, look, I'm going to endorse a line. I mentioned to Michael when we did a hemp panel together a month ago or so, I actually wanted to find something to wear. (laughs) I found lots of beautiful clothing made of hemp in countries outside of the United States, nothing that could actually arrive within a few weeks' notice. There are some amazing fabrics that are out there. And I did a fashion spread when we first launched the Cannabis Reporter showing what some of these amazing wedding gowns and and like red carpet couture that can be made from hemp materials, which are a lot more enduring than just plain silk and a lot more breathable than any synthetic fabric and uh, more healthy than any cotton. Levi's first jeans were made of hemp, but they had to start making them out of cotton because they lasted too long. (laughs) They weren't making any money. (laughs) Yeah, people wouldn't buy more jeans because they they had their one pair of jeans and it lasted forever. (laughs) Yeah. And I can can affirm, as Snowden would remember on our panel, I wore my hemp blue jeans. And these are two years old now, and I purposely wear them. You know, every day I can, wash them as often as I can, and you cannot wear these jeans out. <laughs> right. They just get softer and more comfortable. Yeah, you wear them in. <laughs> you don't yeah. wear them. Yeah, exactly. And they're cool. <laughs> I love that. I mean, hemp was outfitting uh, most of the settlers in the West, you know, covered the covered wagons it, it, with the sails that brought the explorers to the Americas. There are so many amazing, amazing uses for it, but... Back to your point, Micah, to have someone come out and endorse a line of uh, beautiful, fashionable clothing or to have someone come out and endorse a a food product or something, anything. I want to see the feature film of the hemp story. Big Hollywood blockbuster feature film, you know, starring some like Leonardo DiCaprio or some huge star that people recognize that would just tell the story 
you know, in yeah. a two-hour film. You know, uh, easy to digest and understand, and engaging and exciting, and get people educated about the the history of their own country in in regards to hemp, and and then you know set the template for consciousness about it. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot I think of Micah brings up a really good point about, uh, well, I, I would start by saying, you know, I think we, we as an industry, you know, certainly owe a debt of gratitude to the, you know, the pioneering work of his family, his dad with Farm Aid, uh, his mother is founder of, of Sustainable Biodiesel Alliance, and, and really focusing on these, these, you know, these very contemporary issues we have, you know, once again today, and, that, and we're, we're about to celebrate the 10th year anniversary of the, the movie Revolution Green, which was the true story of biodiesel, of which hemp, uh, you know, has a role. Uh, that's going to happen, I think, in, in, on, uh, in Maui the, in the middle of next month. Uh, but when you look at, you know, the, the, the long game here, and this has been a, you know, for those of us who have been advocating this for 10, 15, 20 years, we really are, and, and, and often takes that kind of that kind of time frame anyway to, to change policy uh, you know it took everything that everyone has done you know although from the beginning you know things you know uh, I mean, what Micah did and gathered those 120,000 signatures was extraordinary it's, it takes the Millennials it's going to take you know some new champions that come in to to crowds that you know like as he said I think the NASCAR crowd is the you know the perfect example you know, that that driver that that drives that message home and that designer that designs for millennials that, that has a line of clothing and tell the story about the, the, you know, the aspects of this plant. I think that's how we'll win this game. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think you're absolutely right about that. But um, one of the stories that I wish someone would tell would be the, a biopic about uh, Henry Ford, because he really had his finger on the pulse of what could be a completely sustainable auto industry it, it it's so sad to me that we did go down this path of fossil fuels. I mean, the damage has been done, but I really believe also that hemp can restore the earth that has been destroyed by the fossil fuel industry. I would absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, in, in the, the, some of the dots that, you know, through connecting, you know, Henry Ford into that, that scenario, that, that perfect storm. There was, a, you know, the, the attacks on Pearl Harbor, which were in large part driven by we cutting off the fuel supply lines to Japan. You know, they had no energy security. That, you know, that caused war uh, at a time when Henry Ford was ready to bring out a car that, that, was, that was grown from the soil, ran from the soil. His Iron Mountain bio facility, his vision for a bioeconomy was really right there. We were at the crossroads and then war happens and we convert the factories to, to the war machine and, and then he dies before the war is over and, uh, and the industrial interest you know, took over. And, and it was just you know, it's a fascinating confluence of events uh, that took us from that fork in the road you know, into an unsustainable future. And uh, so now we've, we've got our work cut out for us. But, you know, as Maya Angelou said, you know, do what you can with what you know. And, and when you know better, do better. Well, we know better now. We can yeah. fix this. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. We can fix this. But it's really up to us to continue to drive the message home, especially with people that we know who have absolutely no real understanding about why it's so absurd that it's the Schedule One substance. I mean, that well, never you know, last week's note is another example of kind of counterintuitive. Uh, we had uh, uh, the Hemp Business Journal uh, hosted a webinar, and uh, Jim Woolsey keynoted it. It was uh, partially sponsored by the North American Industrial Hemp Council. And Jim just gave an incredible opening speech 
to that webinar. In fact, you you, you can find it uh, soon, which is naihc.co. But it gives you a flavor of what you know when you when you take somebody like who takes all these connections and the what he knows and says, you know, here's where we can go, and this is why it's important. You know, it really is a a, a fascinating glimpse into this narrative through his world. Yeah. I agree. And you know what, you and I talked about this before in our last interview, you know, and, and using the artistic voice, public influence changes the dynamic of the conversation when people see that. And I'm encouraged by the number of people who are coming out. I mean, I've had a, a lot of discussions with athletes lately as well. And I've done sort of a a series on what's going on with the NFL. And it has taken a lot of players, a lot of courage to start advocating for the use of medical marijuana as opposed to opiates. And I think that that's really starting to drive a lot of awareness. And and as more public figures start to advocate, I think politicians have absolutely no choice but to start to comply with public demand. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're... They signed up to be servants of the people. So if the people are speaking for hemp and they demand it. Yeah. And you know what else? They can't hide behind, you know, the lies that made it illegal to begin with. The deep, dark truth, you know, once we start shining the light on it, there's there's no way that anybody can keep going back to that language. And it, it still shocks me today when I hear politicians talk about it. It shocked me when our own governor here in Arizona decided to veto a bill (laughs) that had, you know, overwhelming bipartisan support for a plant that doesn't make anybody high, you know, why veto it? Well, you know, and, and he's going to be confronted with the truth about that too, because I think in, in Arizona, there's a huge movement of people who are coming together to just make a lot of noise and as more people become aware, they're going to start looking at it and go, well, why did he veto that bill? <laughs> I, right. I hope anyway. I mean, just never know. Well, and I think, Snowden, we've already seen a little bit of that, that you know, the kind of the, the glimpse behind the curtain on that one with the, uh, the arrest of the gentleman who was a prescription opioid company there that was funding a lot of the anti-marijuana efforts. Yeah, which, which, of course, got caught up in, you know, hemp got caught up in. So when you look at following the money of, the, of that industry and who was supporting, you know, the governor, you, you can make sense of why it happened because you just follow the money. Yeah, well, and Insys, of course, makes um, fentanyl, which is on notice. It killed Prince, right? And thousands of other people. Yeah, every day, yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people, and it's not just fentanyl. And the thing that's really aggravating is that the prescriptions aren't the only culprit. It's the black market. But how are these people getting their hands on it? You have to look at the manufacturer and say, are they just overproducing this? Is this how it's being distributed on the black market? You know, are there counterfeiters really out there making it for illegal purposes? Or is this really, you know, something that's going on within the industry, just overproducing and overdistributing these things, and then they fall into the wrong hands? I mean, there are a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, if you follow the money upstream, too, from that, when you talk about how are people getting this, and then you look at deals that were made in Congress for the DEA to basically look the other way, they, they knew doctors were shopping this. They knew that this was proliferating. And the industry got what they wanted because they had enough money to make it happen. So, uh, you know, it's you know, uh, we kind of get the bigger piece of you know money yeah. in our politics, but that's it's very, it's all very easy to explain. Follow the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like crack in the in the eighties. 
you watch this systematic distribution happen. It's very deliberate, I think. So you were up against a very old successful agenda is to disempower people so that they can be manipulated and yeah how sad is that but you know what when the renaissance happened in france there was a lot of chaos and that awakening caused even more chaos before it actually became the renaissance and i can't help but feel that this movement it's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, reshaping the way that we think about industry and the way that we think about people. And it's like this birth of compassion that's trying to break through that is having a hard time because once that happens, a lot of powerful industries, people, philosophies will break down that's an argument from the other side of people trying to keep things like hemp from becoming this revolutionary industry is that inevitably it makes a lot of things that have held power obsolete and they will start to collapse like you're saying and according to some that is a security risk you know when these major industries just crumble because then that is a prime time for a a foreign attack on the country I've heard that argument. And to me, we're already under attack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking that. And our and corporations that own our government. And this is our, our weapon to fight back. And it's it's you know, it's gonna be a, a, some growing pains for sure in this transition, but we have to do it. Um, because there's a dead end if we don't. Well, it wasn't. There's was a Churchill that said, you know, Americans they always eventually do the right thing after they exhausted all other <laughs> options. And I think we're, you know, we we we're exhausting options, and we're we're going to have to do the right thing here soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Micah, you said um, last time we spoke on this show, you said knowledge is power. I've borrowed that a few times since then. That well, really you can borrow it all. I didn't come up with it. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, but you're so right. It's like knowledge is power. And the only way that we are going to be able to come out from under the long arm of, of this industrial military police state complex that we are currently living in right now is to embrace that knowledge and make it grow and sow the seeds of that knowledge so that we can create a sustainable future. And I, I really yeah. am of the belief that hemp is one of those things that could save us with the capital U and a capital S. Even more than the knowledge part, I think experience is power. When you know about something, there's so much disinformation too these days. So seeing things for yourself in order to fully grok them is really important. I think that's even more powerful. Like nobody can tell me Oh, you have to put fossil fuels in your car. You can't, you can't drive your car on waste veggie oil. And I say, oh, yeah? Well, check Watch this me. out. <laughs> I'll, uh, you know, I'm going to put it in my car right now. <laughs> I'm going to drive you home. You know, like, that's power when people can't convince you of something because you've been living and experiencing it yourself mm-hmm. and doing it. You're actively living that example and demonstrating it on a daily basis that's the ultimate. I couldn't agree more. 
<laughs> it's funny. I glued to CNN sometimes because I'm so astonished at how ludicrous the news is these days. But they've started a very, very simple campaign. It's the Apple. <laughs> Have you seen this? And oh. it, it, it's a white screen with an apple on it. And, and basically they say, you know, this is an apple. Some might try to tell you it's a banana. They might use all caps and say banana, banana, banana three times. But no amount of convincing could change the fact that this is actually indeed an apple. <laughs> that's, uh-huh. that's the gist of it. And I look at that and I think to myself, you know what? This applies to this industry very much so. How many times have people said it's dangerous and there's absolutely no separation between hemp and... I mean, even just recently in Alaska, someone was arrested for selling CBD. I'm thinking to myself, this is crazy. <laughs> and, and there's still this debate out there, you know, amongst people in the industry and in law enforcement about whether or not... You know, CBD is one of those things that included in that Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case that made hemp products legal anywhere in the United States. And people are still getting arrested. It's fascinating. You know, Alaska is that one state where you have the irony that recreational marijuana is legal, but industrial hemp is not. Yes. So you run into these odd things like this. Uh, in addition to that, in this probably the past 10 days, the DEA issued a letter to some uh, some interests who effectively said, listen, we still think CBD is illegal. It's still Schedule 1. We still don't like it, but we have an opioid crisis. And so we are going to make, you know, our resources are, I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but our, we're going to direct our resources to that opioid crisis. And we're probably not going to pay much attention to the CBD side of this right now. But we still think it's illegal and it's a drug and nobody should use it. And, and you know, they, they'll line. But at least, you know, this is how you break things down, you know, and then this is kind of the first phase of, the, of, of getting through the denial. It's like, well, okay, we're going to, we're going to look, look over here, rightfully so, because like, we have an opioid crisis that they should be you know, focusing on, we shouldn't even be in that discussion. But this is a, you know, just another step in the journey to winning the war. <laughs> Absolutely. Ugh. Banana, banana, banana. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's bananas. Oh, my God. Well, you know what? I'm just so grateful when I speak to people like both of you who are out there doing the work and you know, lobbying for change, whether on a governmental level or through audience outreach. And, you know, it's exciting to me. This is an exciting time. And we've got a lot of work ahead of us. But it's doable, isn't it? It is. And for me, you know, spending the time with the, with the Chinese this end of last week, you know, may we live in, ex- in interesting times. <laughs> we do. You know, out of chaos comes opportunity. It will. Uh, and, then, and then having these discussions with, with people who, where hemp has been a part of their culture for 12,000 years, you know, and them trying to understand just how we got here, you know, with, on, the, yeah. on, on this issue in the United <laughs> States. It was, it was just a fascinating week for me to, you know, the, and it's to be sitting there with them having these discussions when, when they've clearly, you know, <laughs> embraced it for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, I'm getting the signal that it's nearly time to wrap it up. Any last thoughts? Michael, let's start with you. I don't know if I can say this on the radio. Go ahead. I'll cut it out if, if not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My last thought is that everything is bullshit. Beep. That's a great song and a great album. I'll make the plug for it. It's great. <laughs> Put that in. Yeah. But no, you're okay. Yeah, you're right. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, that's a, that's really. Uh, I got to get up a plug because Mike is my favorite millennial, and he's this, this song is fantastic, and it just really talks to where we are today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, there's a lot to come through. Put your waders on, you know, and the boots up to your knees, and <laughs> but you know, we have you have to start somewhere and clear it out. And oh, one last thing I wanted to mention that I totally forgot, but when we were talking about hemp building and that sort of thing, when you look at these environmental calamities that are happening around us, the floods, the hurricanes, you know, the fires, all of these things. Hemp building is actually one of those things that that should be considered as people rebuild their homes. Because even if a home is flooded, if it's made of hemp walls, you don't have to replace everything in it. If, it, if there's a fire, chances are your home might still stand um, even if everything inside is gutted. It's strong enough to withstand the winds of a hurricane. It's, it's a, a widely available substance, so it's not like we have to take down an entire mountain like you do if, you're, if you need to make concrete blocks, for example. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to me how beneficial this could be for rebuilding our nation after these horrible, horrible events. There's a bridge in China from before recorded history that's still standing, and it's made of hemp. There you go. That's right, and I and I, I had the uh, opportunity and then really the honor of, of sitting on a panel uh, sponsored by the Institute for Caribbean Studies and Ignite Caribbean last Thursday and Friday on Capitol Hill, and this was the discussion on rebuilding these these islands after Irma, and the role of hemp, uh, you know, in this. I mean, they know this is what they have to do. Yeah, I was thinking that, and one of the big problems, you know, with illnesses that are happening because of the devastation in Puerto Rico, for example, if Puerto Rico chose to grow hemp, not only could they remediate some of those Superfund sites, I think, but also build in a way that would be completely cost efficient, you know, without having to beg and grovel for money from the administration. You know, mm-hmm. this is something that I think that if somebody just went down there, I've, I've been so tempted to try to call some people and say, can you just go down there and explain to them, hey, legalize hemp real quick and you'll have houses in, within six months. <laughs> Puerto exactly. Rico, Haiti. Yeah. Fukushima. Yeah. Dominica, Houston, all the, yeah. Chernobyl. Houston. <laughs> Chernobyl. Italy, absolutely. Everywhere. Yeah, and places that were irrigated by the Nile that are filled with kesium from Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> In desert, you know. Anyway, Michael, any last thoughts? Well, I always like to end, uh, you know, any of these with, you know, with the optimism. You know, our opportunities still far surpass our challenges. Uh, This is about engagement and education because I believe that anybody who has heard our story, any anyone you know, it, that is going to participate in our, in our, in our election cycles and, and determining the direction of our government, you know, fully informed on this issue and, and how we got here is what is going to get us there. So as Mike said, once we know something, it is incumbent upon us, whether we're an elected official or just activists and, you know, advocates like we are to make sure that people know about this. And, and that's how we'll make the change. And I, you know, we, we hope to, to grow this army around this narrative substantially in 2018, you know, with the campaign and with the many other things that are that are going on in, in, in parallel with it. So in the middle of all this chaos, I really have never been uh, more optimistic about our chances. Yeah, well, 
I am feeling very optimistic as well, and no doubt we will continue this conversation. And you know what? Thank you both so much for not only the work that you do, but the work that you're continuing to do. I'm really eager to hear about the start of the Hemp for Victory campaign. I think it's going to be an amazing success. And you must let me know if there's anything that I can do to assist with that effort because I'm all in. My sleeves are rolled up. My gaiters are on. <laughs> we can do it. You're, you're our Rosie. You got, I can see your fist pumped and your, your arm curled <laughs> Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. <laughs> Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> Rosie the Riveter. Yep, I've got the sleeves rolled up and a tattoo. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, this is amazing, and what a great conversation, and uh, wow. Well, once again, I would personally like to thank my guests, Micah Nelson and Michael Bowman, for sharing their insights and incredible knowledge with us today. If you want to learn more about the Hemp for Victory campaign when it's launched, or the National Hemp Association, or the creative or lobbying work that they are doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode and I will post their bios along with information and links to websites and other resources. We have a lot of others to thank. First, I would like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Hemp Meds, Health Terra, and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update, Eric Goodall, the composer of our beautiful theme song, Evergreen, our producer, Ed and John, and the rest of the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. And last but not least... Thanks to all of you for listening around the nation. Tune in again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, your host, and until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always.